Hello, everybody. It is Monica Perez here with the Mad Vixen. I don't know if anybody else calls you the Mad Vixen, but she's Maddie of Voluntary Vixens. Hello, Maddie. It is great to see you again. Hi, Monica. It's good to be back. And uh, it has been a while. <laughs> it certainly has. It certainly has. Things have changed, may I say. Things may have changed. <laughs> and, and you're not literally observing, but uh, you are in on the not-so-secret secret anymore. Which is so apropos for our subject today. So tell us your secret, and then I'll tell you the subject. So the non-secret secret, but I guess, okay, we'll, we'll consider it news, right? And yes. uh, things I've been busy doing over the past uh, <laughs> five months of my life where I have been, been recording very much at all. Sorry, Vixen fans. Um, I've been growing a baby. <laughs> You're gestating in the I'm flesh. Gestating. That's fantastic. I love that. I love babies. Catholics love babies. It's it's just a thing. It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> we I mean, love babies. Babies are our life. And um, literally, like, it's the opportunity to continue life. So it's- Yes. And it's this time. That's what I always say to my kids and stuff. Like, you know what? You know what? You know, this whole sexism thing, like, women can grow human beings inside their bodies. Yeah. Nothing is cooler than that. So big snaps, Um, big snaps to you. Thank you. And on that, like I'll butcher it, but it reminds me of something that I heard Stefan Molyneux put in some way one time where I was just like, my God, like we are amazing creatures generally. (laughs) Like I, I think like humans are just such fascinating, unbelievable creatures but then, you know, women. Yeah, <laughs> I'm women not, just take And I'm cake. not even like yeah, anybody who's listened to my podcast or even my visits here with Monica. I'm not just like some raving uh, feminist here. <laughs> no. But it's, it's just amazing. Amazing. We, we, are, we are goddesses. We literally um, do that which God does in that we create life. And when what? they send that home with you... <laughs> They're oh just like, oh, feed it and keep it clean. And you're just like, well, I, you know, they try uh, to give you like papers that are supposed to explain it to you. And then you're just yeah. sitting there and you're like, here's oh. some pamphlets. I mean, I didn't even want to carry them around. Like I just didn't even, I was oh, no. not. I'm burning that. Yeah. Not, it wasn't the easiest. So, yeah. well, so this brings us to today's topic, which really could not be more apropos. What we've been doing, so the last two times we got together, we did uh, chat, uh, rule one and two, and then rule three and four. And now we're on rule five and six of Jordan Peterson's 12 rules. Is it of for living? Is that what for it life. is? Yeah, for life. Rules for, for life. life. So, because the reason I don't have it with me is that I left the damn book with all of my <laughs> notes at my mother's house because we oh were going to do it from there, but jet lag crippled me and I couldn't do it. I hate to pull the plug on you. So I left it there and I just wasn't willing to delay it again. So we t- we're on five and six right now. And mm-hmm. this just as a caveat, like I don't follow Jordan Peterson. I really don't know much about him other than what I've read so far in this book. And I'm only about halfway through it. And I, I love the book. I love the book. And it reminds me a bit of a book that I was recently turned on to that apparently everybody and his brother has read boundaries, which is uses a lot of like Christian scripture oh, mm-hmm. in it to like help you be okay with saying no and there's a difference between nice and kind and good and bad and all of that. And because he has a religious background, like studied comparative religions, he does bring a lot of these concepts in, although he isn't a promoter of a particular religion or anything like that. But this chapter, Rule 5, which kind of triggered me, like it brought back some insecurities and memories, 
that a it's it's interesting because i'm looking at this in retrospect and you're looking at it in prospect yes and here's the name of it do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them and it's it's 20 pages or so of how to raise kids and i can't help but feel like it's not quite enough <laughs> so. right i mean my thought so like you said and I've mentioned before when we've done these little uh, meetings of ours, these little buddy dives. Um, exactly. Yeah, I think I've, it might have been my first buddy dive. I think I was. Yeah. <laughs> Popped the uh, buddy dive cherry. I'm, <laughs> I'm cool with that. So I've read this book before, you know, front to back, cover to cover. I've reread it. I've listened. I listened to it a lot. And like I've said before that I find value sometimes in like going back to certain chapters just to listen to that. Um, and it's sort of like meditative for me. And uh, it's just good reminders. Um, and that's, you know, one of the things we're doing here with our little deep dives is things that are um, really useful to anybody and especially people that might not think that they're a Jordan Peterson fan, but it's like, there's so much value here for anybody. So anyway, like, you know, previously delving into this book, um, me having no children before the one that's currently growing inside of me, um, you know, to me, it's just like, uh, duh. And like, I know I kind of hate those kids that are unruly and nobody ever properly disciplined them. And no, that doesn't mean no, somebody like didn't like spank them or beat them <laughs> into proper manners and disciplineship. It's that nobody or their parents abdicated that responsibility that they had to teach that child the difference between right and wrong, teach that child boundaries, what's respectable and acceptable within their own household, but how that relates to finding a place in society as you're going to grow and develop into a human and ultimately not have parents. So, you know, it just, to me, it was like, well, duh, like that seems so easy. Eh, maybe not easy, but like really, really important. And I, and I wish everybody knew and saw it that way. And so now, as you said, I've, I've looked at this chapter again, more prospectively. I'm like, oh man, like this is as if I wasn't already like, you know, anxious and paranoid enough. Uh, it's just, it, it, he really um, reminds the reader of the responsibility that comes with parenthood. <laughs> yes. Yes. Can it, may I interject? I yes, go ahead. No, yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll let it Come all on, get parent. away from me after you <laughs> say it. Yeah, so, so I agree with you and him. And, and what he does is he goes through a few anecdotes of a kid who won't eat his own, a kid who mm -hmm. won't sleep, a friend's. I did, I did crack the code on the sleeping. I had a book called Healthy Sleep Habits, Happy Child. It was the only parenting book I lived by, and it was really effective for what it was. It was an excellent book. I'm going to need it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I absolutely, I will send it to you. I have a little package that I send like new okay. moms of the things that will get you through that first year. So, um, so, so he, and then he's like the kids who are um, throwing tantrums and whatever. And I remember always thinking, and it's happened to me. And that's why I was thinking it is kids who are throwing tantrums at target our kids who are throwing tantrums at home. Like Target Absolutely. is not the place where you're going to be able to rein them in. And if you can't, it's because you're just not in the habit of it. And that happened to me. I had special circumstances because my first son had Down syndrome and I had all these therapies and stuff until I kind of stopped doing that. But they, like one woman gave me the advice, like children should never be in public places. They're just not made for that. So instead mm -hmm. of thinking of discipline and, you know, teaching them how to be in society, I got some bad advice. And that really goes to the heart of, 
I think a lot of my parenting um, dilemmas that I'd always had was that as especially somebody with a childhood Down syndrome, there's a lot, a lot of advice and a lot of kind of government workers who are invested in one position or another. Mm, And it, it was impossible for me to sift through that. And I would say that when I read Boundaries, when I read this chapter from Jordan Peterson, there's nothing I disagreed with. But I will say the things that I ran into that was a problem was that, um, and and he actually, and this is the one thing I absolutely want to read is the paragraph on, he says, set rules. I think this breaks down into four things, like set rules, use the minimum amount of force necessary to get those rules. And there's a couple more I'll let you hit. But, yeah. But for me, like, I didn't even know where to set the rules. I did later in life at the prompting of somebody who asked me to do it kind of as a, you know, for her practice at, um, she was a therapist. And so I do have a thing that I set out of like all the possible things the kids could do and then all the consequences. And, and if it were to escalate or whatever, I have this like amazingly comprehensive thing that if somebody emails me at Monica Perez show <laughs> at gmail.com and promises like to use it only for themselves, uh, I will, I would share it, but it's complicated and his are simpler, but I didn't know exactly what rules I should you know, and what the seriousness of the infraction was, what the right kind of punishment would be. I didn't know if coming into a situation, you would, you know, if you said no, you should always stick with no. But if it wasn't important, could you negotiate? Does that undermine you? Is it like training a dog? So I didn't really know how to execute these ideas. I was already behind the eight ball because I didn't even know what to do. And I really, I really think that my problems so, so I had this weird, you know, my first child with Down syndrome, but also I was the youngest of nine. So I didn't really see like mm. a normal modeled family. And then I was also raised during a time where there were like women need to work, like, and they never paid any lip service. Even, um, there was no attention. There was no more home economics. There was no attention to the fact that motherhood is a really important occupation and it's nuanced and it's subtle and there's just so much to it that you that pretending it's not it's an afterthought outsourcing it to people sometimes who don't speak english or people who don't care they're too young i mean it's not a good thing to do and then there is a real disconnect between generations because of technology and other things where like my mother, what she modeled for me wasn't really helpful to me with the kids. And I didn't, and, and I don't think what I model model for my kids is necessarily going to be as helpful as they're going to need it to be. But I just, I feel like if I had even really thought about the problem, like a real job, a hard job, I probably would have done a better job. And uh, I, I think that this chapter is actually a good place to start. I would say there are, it's not as easy, you know, it's as simple as he says, perhaps, perhaps, mm-hmm. but it's not easy. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a fair way to put it. And it's still, you know, it doesn't make me think I'm going to have an easier time of it. In in, in actuality, I'm like, this is going to be very hard. And I, and I guess like I have some experience, I'm the oldest of three. Um, there have been a lot of young, younger children around me, whether it's like in, in my own family and either I'm like middle of the group in terms of the cousin pack. Um, so I've got a lot of younger cousins. Um, and then I t- I'm a manager at work. Like I manage other people and 
even reading this chapter kind of gave me some new insights as to like how I should think about some of my uh, more unruly employees. <laughs> yeah. And, and it gives me a little bit more um, sympathy for where they're coming from because these are behaviors that if they're not fixed and addressed and, you know, given restraint at a young age, it will have ramifications and consequences for that person for the rest of their life, unless and until somehow in some way it is brought to their attention that they are um, maybe uh, deficient in some, or like, you know, it's arrested development, but that's not an easy topic to bring up to somebody. Yes. Um, and I'm worried that that is going to be worse than ever because the stuff oh, he talks about, about socializing the kids that, when you're so hooked on screens and everything, my kids didn't get a phone until they were like 12 or 13, which was too early already. Like I'm yeah. telling you, I wish I'd gotten them a clamshell and not a smartphone. I just was stupid. And people warned me, but I didn't, even my husband was like, I don't think this is a good idea. And they were going to a new school and I just thought well, everybody has them. I, it, you know, you're just stupid. You make mistakes. But to the extent that Maybe I worry that my kids weren't perfectly socialized because when they went to preschool, it was integrated with other kids who had Down syndrome and their siblings and all of that. And maybe they didn't get everything that they needed. And now I look and think, what about kids who bring, you know, two-year-olds in a high chair with an iPad in front of them so the parents can go out to dinner? I mean, it's, it's, I feel bad when my 20-year-old does that with the Down's kid at the, you know, if I don't want to leave them home with the sitter. So I think that there's, we're really, and so not only is the screen problem, but the behavior modeling, I mean, my mother really didn't, she didn't have a full-time job. She wasn't a career woman. So at least I had somebody home and that was a model to me. So actually I, for the most part, because I had a radio show and did podcasts to the extent I worked, I was home and I, and I thought, you know, my mom was just there. She wasn't super active, but she was there. And I, and I, I mean, so that what I got, what was models for me, I did imitate. And I wonder what kids will imitate when on the one hand, they are glued to screens and are not having the peer interaction that is so crucial according to Peterson. And I think is true to their, uh, the social cues that they need, the peer cues that they need to know how to behave, to know what's acceptable throughout life. they learn them very young. And then on the other hand, not having, their own mother there to, to model the behavior. Maybe they'll even, won't even have a home situation. Maybe you don't have your own one-on-one -on -one nanny, but really are in a preschool setting from a very young age. I don't know how that will shake out. That's a change. That's an intergenerational change that we are not always going to be suited to help our kids through. Definitely. And so this is, um, if you remember, and anybody listening again remembers, and was subscribing for bonus content, um, when Monica and I had our first uh, meetings, we kind of saved some like COVID bonus yeah, things yeah, that's um, right. for later. And so I'm still kind of like doing that here and there. But since, um, you know, we're no longer structuring it in that way, something that I flagged with that in mind, but is, I think, um, relevant to what you're pointing out now and is totally related to the same screen issue. Like we're now in screen like city, like it, more totally. so than we already were. So anyway, I think um, I'm skipping through a good chunk of the chapter, like to get to this point. And, you know, there's a lot of juicy stuff that he hits before you mentioned earlier, this was yes. like a 20 page. Um, yeah. At least chapter. this is, but like, I didn't, I had no quotes. Yeah. I had no quotes. It was so this anecdotal. One, yeah. So this one is on page um, 122. 
And I'll start kind of in the middle um, where I think this leads into being relevant. And so he says, children must be shaped and informed or they cannot thrive. This fact is reflected starkly in their behavior. Kids are utterly desperate for attention from both peers and adults because such attention, which renders them effective and sophisticated communal players, is vitally necessary. And he goes on. Children can be damaged as much or more by lack of incisive attention as they are by abuse, mental and physical. This is damaged by omission rather than commission, but it is no less severe and long-lasting. Children are damaged when their mercifully inattentive parents fail to make them sharp and observant and awake and leave them instead in an unconscious and undifferentiated state. Children are damaged when those charged with their care, afraid of any conflict or upset, no longer dare to correct them and leave them without guidance. And he says, I can recognize such children on the street. They are doughy and unfocused and vague. They are leaden and dull instead of golden and bright. They are uncarved blocks trapped in a perpetual state of waiting to be. And so to me, it's like, that's that's a lot of people these days. So of course, like if that's what the people are, that they're... Uh, mercifully inattentive parents kind of like their parenting resulted in their creation. And that's who they are. Like those doughy people are creating doughier. Yeah, exactly. On that point, I wanted to make a couple of comments that I had observed about Mm -hmm. in retrospect that, that not only do you need the discipline and punishment. And he does mention, maybe he doesn't emphasize it, but he does mention the importance of a positive, positive reinforcement. Those words are funny, positive and negative reinforcement and feedback and stuff. They're funny. I would say rewards and punishments, let's say. So rewarding good behavior with Mm -hmm. a smile, a pat on the back, take your kid for a walk around the block. You don't have to even get them ice cream. You can just sit with them and, um, you know, literally just sit outside for five minutes and ask them about their day. That's a reward because what, what you're just saying there is that they really want attention. So if you can have, and this is where I think, uh, I find it more challenging than just reading the reading on the page is that you have to be very mindful of these interactions so that when they're doing something really good, you uh, give it a little bit of positive. Then if there is something that you just want to ignore, it's annoying. You don't want to give it negative attention. You know, you don't want to give it punishment, but you just want it to go away, ignore it. And then these are behavioral techniques that I have have learned over the years, like studied and, and implemented. And then when something does require punishment, whether it's mild or severe, yes, but this, all of this requires mindfulness and like being present And this is where that whole uh, negating motherhood thing is really a problem because you feel guilty just being there because uh, on the one hand, it feels kind of passive and inactive maybe, although you're really running around, but it just, it feels like leisure. It feels like, well, what do you do all day? I mean, people would ask me, what do you do all day? It's like, oh my gosh, like I can't get it done. I cannot get it all done. And that you have to be mindful. So I would, you know, if people are looking for kind of pointers, I would say, be sure you are not overextended. You need to be mindful so that you can have the presence of mind, not be worried about other things, to react in these ways. And he says, he says that this is pretty much formed by the time they're four. Yeah. So you got to take it seriously and soon. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 
Um, but he did quote Skinner, who I believe his daughter on whom he experimented. I, I think mm. she took her own life. So I'm not sure I'd be quoting Skinner. And a lot mm. of his anecdotes are like one of the coming up in the next chapter that we're talking about. I think like three out of four of the things he mentioned were false flags, if not four out of four. So trying to get psychological insight into these mass terroristic events that were manipulated in advance, I feel like it's not a good place to get your that's that's actually what I hate about that. It's what I hate about chemtrails also is that you're looking at an event, you're looking at something that happened, you're looking at a phenomenon and you're trying to, what I would say, like see the mind of God, hmm. but it's not, what you see is not what you get. So I really don't like it when they point to things that don't hold up under scrutiny as the example, but his stuff is sound. Like I think his theories are sound, so I'm all right with it. Um, yeah. I did want to read that little paragraph about rules. Did you have any reactions to that? Um, not really. Like we're seeing, like you said, probably we're in a scarier state of that being more the norm than ever. And it's, it's very scary. Cause then like other parts of the chapter, he talks about like, um, some people have this false idea that, and, you know, we know the people who think this way too, but and about people generally, um, not just kids, but like, there's no such thing as a bad kid or, you know, the, um, that kids are inherently born good and they only learn bad through the examples of others. But it's like, really like, no, it's, it, as humans they're humans too and they're just very underdeveloped humans so they have the capacity for bad too and that's like you know not necessarily the automatic default but it's basically them trying to understand their boundaries and their limits and they will um exhibit those or you know um try to try to figure them out. And if they're not clearly shown, it's going to, it can lead to um, further and further aggression and magnified by such. Yeah. I don't know what words to use. I want to use like tamed or civilized. Like they have to be, uh, they have to be, I, I think priest told me once that they have to be pruned. And I always thought about the crepe myrtle. So when I lived in Texas, in Dallas, people had crepe myrtles everywhere. And what I hadn't realized is that a crepe myrtle is not a tree. It is a bush, if I'm mm -hmm. not mistaken. So one variety of it anyway. And in order to get it to be a big, tall tree, I had a whole bunch of them in the house I bought. And I didn't know this, but it took many years to, you had to keep pruning those, uh, the little branches on the bottom. And, and it, so it has to be very mature to mm -hmm. be a tree. And that's kind of my thinking about about like what it takes to make a child into a tree instead of a bush. They want to be a bush. <laughs> Bushes are more fun, but they don't yeah. get very tall. So in order to like be civilized, that. yeah, he has this, he has this little list and I don't would hate to normally read an entire paragraph, but because it is, he did distill them into these great rules. I'm going to. Yeah, go ahead. So he says, uh, what should we limit the rules to? Here are some suggestions. Do not bite, kick, or hit, except in self-defense. Do not torture and bully other children so you don't end up in jail. Eat in a civilized and thankful manner so that people are happy to have you at their house and pleased to feed you. Learn to share so other kids will play with you. Pay attention when spoken to by adults so they don't hate you and might therefore deign to teach you something. Go to sleep properly and peaceably so that your parents can have a private life and not resent your existence. Take care of your belongings because you need to learn how and because you're lucky to have them. 
Be good company when something fun is happening so that you're invited for the fun. Act so that other people are happy you are around so that people will want you around. A child who knows these rules will be welcome everywhere. And I have to say, I discovered most of those over the years and did always try to teach my kids, like, if you're happy, if you want to be included, make sure people are happy that you are there. And and they did take that to heart. Although the teenage years, it's like a new, it's like a second toddlerdom. Mm. They really get a little wild and they, they're all new rules and they don't want to, <laughs> they don't want to believe you, but you get through that too. I need, he needs to write a whole nother book for the teens. Yeah. I think right. that book boundaries is quite helpful for the teens. Yeah. And you've mentioned that book before and I'm going to need to get yeah. on it sooner than later. Um, yeah, it was good. I need to instill some boundaries in my life still, as I'm trying to like establish that motherhood means something and I give a damn and you know, it actually means a hell of a lot more than my job. So thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, you'll probably be able to do both, especially if you have, uh, that was one of, I think that's his third rules that, uh, parents should come in pairs. So hopefully oh, yeah. you've got that, you've got the help there. So oh, I'm, I yeah, I don't, I, I emphasize motherhood, but I feel like both parents can be, either parent can be the primary caregiver in my, in my observation. People might disagree yeah. with that, but I think that's true. I he mean, said, um, and so gestation and lactation, I think you pretty much got the, someone would yeah. argue with that too, but I think we've got yeah. the market covered on that. So it's just efficiency to be the caretaker when they're young. Yeah. Sucklings. Uh, basic biology, which, you know, yes. I, did, I have taken many of those. Classes. Yes, exactly. You could write the book. So should we skip to the fourth and fifth principles or, I mean, I really just skipped right to the end there. Did you have anything between now and then? No, but I think uh, since you raised the point, um, he says we shouldn't pretend that all family forms are equally viable. They're not, period. And so that's he's kind of, you know, oh, oh, no, what a fascist for indicating that, like you just said, parents need to come in pairs. Um, like, I think it's yeah. it's not always going to be that case um, because of some, you know, unforetold or unplanned circumstance. Yeah. But again, it goes back to, I think, being responsible. And I've said for a long time before I became, you know, pregnant myself and was anywhere close to it, that it's like, be careful with whom you procreate because it matters. And, you know, we've got personal friends of ours that like are in these dilemmas and mix ups. And it's like, you knew exactly what you were doing before you got into this and before you did the things that you know that make a baby. <laughs> and that's what I tell my kids. Like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lay like tons of Catholic guilt on you or anything like that. No. I just, uh, for a lot of reasons, you need to watch out about sleeping with people you're not married to. But the number one reason, in my opinion, is you should never sleep with someone you couldn't raise a child with, not like trade a child back and forth. It is, take it from me, it is hard enough to raise uh, healthy, good children in a loving two-family, two-parent home. And it takes two parents and there is real balance in the male and female. There's real balance there. I'm not saying you can't that, that there aren't plenty of dysfunctional families that are made up like that and plenty of healthy, happy, I know healthy, happy people who are gay couples or single parents. And I just, dysfunction comes in every combination. Oh, it sure does. But 
to have a loving relationship and natural children, uh, I think e- even that is a bit of a challenge. And adding those other variables, they, it can be a wild card. I mean, it is, it's a pretty natural arrangement. And I think it does, it works. And back in the day, it was supported by a lot of evidence, which is why when I was a little kid, single people were not allowed to adopt. Because just the outcomes, there there was one study I read or saw a reference to that said there is a one-to-one correlation between additional time with dad and psychological health. So mm. if you had, you know, one hour with dad a week, you had X amount of psychological health, like in this study, and kids who spent 10 hours with dad had like 10 times the psychological health or like one-tenth the need for therapy or something. It was just like a one-to-one correlation between dad time and health. And dads, you should think about that because that is where like girls get a sense of security and they can, uh, don't use sex as a, an acting out thing because we are talking about how to raise good kids and that using, uh, inappropriate sexual behavior is just not, not the way to raise good kids to get good kids. On that, and I haven't read it, but I, it was again to, you know, they, uh, give some credit to Molyneux. Um, I learned of this book because he had this, the author of it on, and it was this book called the science of dads. And it's basically like showing like the scientific data and relevance of like what a dad's presence in a child's life means and can do. And, all the benefits, of course, like the obvious ones and the less obvious ones. Like, here's just like something fascinating that I think of. Um, like, I'm I'm the bio nerd, but I'm also like a language nerd, and so I because I think it's all it's all interconnected, and where we all came from and how we all just deal with each other on a day to day basis. But so anyway, a child's language is going to be more significantly furthered in development and developed based on the amount of time that they spend with dad because moms have the little like, you know, cheat words and like simple phrases that like they know that the child understands and that works and that, and it's their routine. They stick with the routine and that's what the baby's used to. That's what the mom's used to. And so when the father's stepping in and having their like, you know, dad time with them, they're a little less in tune with um, this mom baby language and they are more likely to talk to them like a human and like another person that they happen to be interacting with and caring for at that time. And so because their language that they're giving and showing to the child is broader than the mother is bringing to them, it's like that's where they learn all their new words. I think I can support that with my own experience, not necessarily dad, mom, but I always made sure, because I remember when I was a little kid, the thing that made my childhood fun for me was I had eight older brothers and sisters and most of them were adults. And I mean, they were one of my brothers, 18 when I was born. So they just cascaded into adulthood and they brought all their wild, crazy adult friends, you know, in the seventies and eighties over the house. And I really got quite an education and really probably too much of an education. But when I was raising my kids, I wasn't near my family. And I remember deliberately making sure that I had interaction. So I'd always have, I'd always had help because it was impossible to, I had three kids in diapers and one of them had Down syndrome. So I always had help, but I made sure it was someone of good character, someone who I could talk to. And I was always home. So I would interact with them. And I always made sure I was happy that my kids were exposed to conversation. I think I was extra tuned into it because people who have Down syndrome 
have really uh, limited, some of them can't speak at all. They have limited vocabulary. And I wasn't crazy about the therapies that they wanted me to do with my son. Like I didn't agree with them necessarily. I didn't get it. They were a chore. And I said, you know what? I'm going to treat this kid like a normal kid, but I'm going to make sure that he has things like, you know, warmth and hugging and, and just exposure to language because I had actually dug into some of the research on how you get kids with Down syndrome to be more functional, more talkative and stuff. And a lot of the times the research about Down uh, therapies for those kids compares to compares them to when they were like given up into orphanages and put in cribs and isolated. So I found that the basic premises, principles weren't really necessarily specific to Down syndrome. It was just that Down's kids were not getting what normal kids were getting, typical kids were getting. And it got me tuned into what was typical, what were typical kids getting. And in, in my house, it was a lot of conversation and activity. And I just felt being around that was good enough. So I was a little passive as a parent, but I saw the value in in the action and in the exposure to that. And yes, having another adult in the house would help with that for sure. And having, you know, lots of them I thought was always fun, but. I, I think I can relate to that. And just that I always felt like, and I, t and I give my parents and my um, aunts and uncles credit, like if this ever comes up and we're talking about this, but whenever we saw all of them, which was fairly often, like we had a big and local close knit family and um, we didn't get treated like kids. We got treated like adults and we were exposed to maybe some, uh, adult content, but, you know, harmless in the long run, but we were exposed to conversations that other adults were having and how other adults interacted with each other and things that, you know, they were experiencing out in their world and that they were talking to each other about. So we all had, and me especially, just because I think like I'm the, a little bit of the wallflower type and I just sit and listen and watch. Um, but I mean, we had so much to absorb from those people and I think we're all better for it. Yes, I agree with that. And it's funny, you would not believe this, but I was really literally, honest to goodness, called the quiet one. <laughs> that is how loud my house was. I mean, can you wow. imagine what mm -hmm. a cacophony at all times it was? Wow. Uh, so, yeah, so I want to hit his fourth principle. Yeah. There's two. One, um, he said, parents should understand their own capacity to be harsh, vengeful, arrogant, resentful, angry, and deceitful. And he talks about that in another place. He emphasizes the dangers of trying to be friends with your kids. And mm -hmm. I want to address both of these. One is I never want, I never needed to be friends with my kids. I understood the danger of that. I was worried that I just didn't know how to be fair. I didn't want to be too harsh. I didn't want to be not having them heard. And he addresses something really important in this, in this little paragraph here that uh, pertains to that. As far as being angry and deceitful, I can see how if your kids are out of control and you yourself are immature or under stress that you can take it out on their kids. I, my guess is that that, uh, is heavily correlated with financial duress and, uh, a lot of stress and being overtaxed mm -hmm. so that you just, you can't. So I think that there's probably a big socioeconomic correlation to that kind of stuff. And uh, thank, so I could even compare my upbringing with my children's upbringing and it would support that. But I want to get to the fifth and final one is where this other thing that's relevant, but we can go back if you want. Parents have a duty to act as proxies for the real world. Merciful proxies, caring proxies, but proxies nonetheless. And I remember when my 
sister was raising her daughter. So my sister was 17 years older than I, and, uh, they had a very friendly relationship. And I remember thinking, and and the girl like got stressed out when you criticized her. And I remember Mm -hmm. thinking, boy, if, if you don't tell her, no one's ever going to be able to tell her, you know, And and they, they, girl turned out to be absolutely lovely. She's a mom herself, adorable kid and all that. So it's fine. But I just, I remember thinking like note to self, you are going to have to be the bad guy. And then, but this is where it, it broke down for me. And I wish I had, I I would, I don't know if I ever would have known to highlight this one sentence in prospects, but I would highlight it now. I was always torn about if I should, so I have this story I've told before. I said to my daughter, she had little sparklies on her sneakers. I said, don't go in the rain. Don't go in that puddle with the sparklies. The sparklies will come off. And I looked out the window five minutes later, she's at the end of the driveway standing right in the puddle. And I, I, I might've even told you the story before and I didn't know what to do. And I said to the person next to me, or maybe I was telling the teacher that I say something, I went down and I said, what are you doing? And she said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm standing in the puddle. I said, I just told you not to do that. The little things will come off. And she said, I didn't believe you. And look, they didn't come off. And I let her get away with it Mm. because I'm a libertarian and I wanted her to know how to think and to question authority because I felt I was preparing her for a world that was structurally unsound. And, you know, the way he talks about this, he's like social society is society and you can have different ideological viewpoints. Like this is in chapter six, I think, but you have to understand the social structure. You will not be able to function in it. And I went wrong there. And here's the sentence. He said, uh, it's the primary duty of parents to make their children socially desirable. That will provide the child with opportunity, self-regard and security. It's more important even than fostering individual identity. So I highlighted that, which is, and he said, which is the Holy grail that can be pursued only after a high degree of social sophistication can be established. And that is the order of operations that I was not aware of. And I, and that's where like, I look back and I think, was I, was I too harsh? Was I not harsh enough? Was I too libertarian? Was I not libertarian enough? I just got it in the wrong order. I mean, we're not talking, I don't have a disaster. I just, I, you know, you look back and you can identify the struggles that they have as teens, which are tremendous. And I think almost in my case, like it's almost all COVID and screens. Like I could mm-hmm. say it's almost all that. I'm not, really not spending a ton of time beating myself up, but it's nice to reflect. And I do try to do that. And I, and I feel like I didn't even get it wrong. I just got it in the wrong order. I feel like that makes so much sense. And even when it makes more sense now, I highlighted this too. But where I stopped my highlight, it was before that holy grail can only be pursued. But wow, I mean, I think that's um, that's something I will definitely have to remember. And like you said, like I'm a libertarian or whatever we call ourselves as well. You know, we're the free thinkers. We're independent. Like, and we, I'm going into this. I'm like, well, you know, my kid is not going to be not awake. However, yeah, and we're the resistance. We we are training. We're the resistance. No. And I we're need to make sure that we are aware that the world is out to kind of, you know, dampen people, a stamp on, if not dampen people like us. And and the, as a result, gonna be people like them too. But I mean, I think there's so much value in like some of it in COVID related is like I wasn't I wasn't one of those people who absolutely 
hands down, refuse to wear a mask at all times. Me neither. Me neither. I'm averse to conflict. I knew when it was better or just made more sense for me to blend in, even though it's it, Agreed. You know, it violated my core. What's beliefs. the point? What's the point? There wasn't a point. At, at certain times, there wasn't a point, even though I understand the broader point and I respect anybody who completely never did it. Like, good for you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that service of yours. But yes, I, right. I agree. I agree. I was like, somebody else said it. Um, who's one of the Jack Spiro, maybe? He's like, no one to be the gray man. And so, like, kind of like deferring to society's uh cues and kind of like knowing how to behave and act among them and within them for own, your self-preservation if nothing else for a while like they're that's not nothing and um I children they can't i think there's probably an age i don't know if it's 12 or four or whatever but there's an age before which you really don't have to do that and i'm sure like i think homeschoolers probably <clears throat> really have an advantage because you can teach kids classics. Like there was classic education mm -hmm. that wasn't yeah. propagandizing brainwashing. And there's some great, I did a show with Jill who's a listener and a homeschooler. It was a great show. And she talks about her resources. I think I have mm -hmm. some books like these like classic homeschooling, yeah. um, you know, big thick books that just like this one book is everything you need to know. And it has the list of other books in it. I'm sure Ron Paul's revolution works for that too. And, but I actually, think that, and I, I think John Taylor Gatto, I wish mm -hmm. we could still talk to him, might agree with it, that the homeschoolers, that the active ones, people who, which is not active is probably also fine, but schooling, that peer environment, the peers in a cage, although I will say that the socializing you know, Peterson is saying that that kind of socializing is where the value is, the playground, the sandbox, whatever. But the homeschoolers who are constantly doing activities with the kids or just getting them out, going to the park or, or walking them through the woods or whatever, just exposing them to a variety of sensory experiences, mm -hmm. a variety of social experiences, um, get, expose them to people who you do respect, people in authority or people who are making a speech or, or are an expert in something that you do respect, handpicked, that isn't pushed through the mill of everything needs to have some political propaganda points since from cradle to career, like that is a problem. So I actually think homeschoolers might have an advantage in just even in the style of socializing in that, in that tactile diversity of socializing that I feel like makes those kids so mature. Agreed. And I plan on homeschooling. So that's another reason Excellent. why I'm like taking the whole motherhood thing seriously and can't try to figure out where my when and where my exit uh, will be um, from my job that is killing me. But um, yeah. I think you know homeschoolers, but traditional homeschoolers would uh, agree with what you're saying. I think, but I think like with good reason to do so. And um, so and again, like we should move on to Rule Six really yes. soon. But um, uh, Michael Malice brings up the point that like you know the socialization you're forced to endure in maybe the public school arena is you know these miscreants these abusive bully kids um you know the only time in your life you might be bullied is at public school with these kids with these unruly unbehaved undisciplined children that somebody else fucked up <laughs> um along the way and then your kids subjected to their failures i'll tell you that i would say if i had one 
really uh, just total blind spot weakness that I just could not figure out or deal with was that when kids had conflicts like that with other kids, with their peers, with their siblings, whatever, if I wasn't there to watch it, I did not know how to assess it. I did not know how to assess it and to right the wrong. So maybe that's another reason that being a homeschooler will be helpful Mm. is that you can actually see the context before two kids are just crying. And, you know, so I, I like the idea of being, you know, involved, but but in the, in the shadows, maybe. So the last line is the first line. Do not mm-hmm. let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. That's a great rule of them. Yeah. And so all of his, all of his chapters begin or end with like reiterating the same yeah. rule. Begin oh, and end. Man, he can wrap it up. <laughs> yeah, he's good. And this all started, I think it all started with that, according to the introduction with his Quora line that these are the 12 rules. So I think the first and last line are the 12 rules and the, and the chapter yeah. puts the meat on the bones. So rule six, mm-hmm. set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. That's a tall order. Yeah. But then, so what's funny is like reading the book, this chapter is in like listening to audiobook, It's about half an hour versus like an hour, 20 minutes or so. That was rule five. And so I guess like, and they kind of, um, I'm glad we broke these discussions up the way we did. Cause actually five and six, I think bl- like flow right into each other really well. Um, and that's almost why six can be a little bit tighter and smaller and shorter. Um, but you could not have put six before you got to know this guy because it no. says some crazy stuff. I was like, Oh, I should like let my whatever daughter read this part. And I was just like, Holy crap. Like it's, it talks about like Columbine and suicide and mass shootings and terrorism. And I'm like, I'm not, I mean, I'm not like, Hey, here's a self-help book, you know, that starts with the worst stories that a teen has ever done. Yes. And I just think that it's, it's, uh, it, it actually, I'm surprised that from a liability point of view, he writes, I mean, even his Tolstoy quote, actually, I thought that I, I liked this. I remember this Tolstoy quote because I like Tolstoy and he's very easy to read. People don't think so. He's very easy to read. And he went through this spiritual journey. And when Peterson is quoting him, I actually thought the original quote had kind of a different viewpoint, but he's saying like, it's almost nihilistic. And I thought it was this Tolstoy's path to spirituality uh, it's just, um, I guess I should read it since I said I was, yeah. since I referred to it. Yeah. Is it this one? Distress? No. Hold on. Stand by. We might have to edit this pause out if I can't find it quickly. Here it is. Here it is. Okay. I got it, babe. Okay, go ahead. There's two. All right. Um, it says, at the height of his fame, influence, and creative power, the towering Leo Tolstoy began to question the value of human existence. He reasoned in this way. My position was terrible. I knew that I could find nothing in the way of rational knowledge except a denial of life. And in faith, I could find nothing except a denial of reason. And this was even more impossible than a denial of life. According to rational knowledge, it followed that life is evil and people know it. They do not have to live, yet they have lived and they do live, just as I myself had lived, even though I had known for a long time that life is meaningless and evil. And, uh, and I always read it as being that 
that that was only true until he acknowledged, given the choice between no God and God, that God was the only fulfilling, you know, the only thing that, that made human life meaningful and therefore potentially may be its own proof. Uh, but he takes a negative take. It goes on with the, more of the quote, only unusually strong and logically consistent people act in this manner, having realized all the stupidity of the joke that is being played on us and seeing that the blessings of the dead are greater than those of the living and that it is better not to exist. They act and put an end to this stupid joke and they use any means of doing it, et cetera, et cetera. And, and Peterson is saying that Tolstoy was living that way. And I guess I just didn't remember it because it was one of these, his treatises on like how he got from being basically atheistic or agnostic to being so spiritual, a spiritual anarchist, I might add, that he gave up writing fiction, which like caused a stir in the world because it was such a loss because he just, he, and, and it's, the, and that is the logical conclusion. If you really think there's a God, so you've got eternity that you're working on in these 80 years, by all means, every waking minute, every sleeping moment should be completely dedicated to, to that truth. And he was, you know, shows more dedication than, than I ever could, but it was sad for me because I found that, that the whole thing from Tolstoy was so redeeming, redemptive in the end. And here it is nestled between three false flags and I just uh, bummed me out. So the first half of this bummed me out, but it, it's a harsh reality that he wants you to take responsibility for the state of your life. Yeah. And um, he continues that with uh, saying that Tolstoy wasn't pessimistic enough and the stupidity of the joke being played on us does not merely motivate suicide. And so it's not, you know, nihilism's one result is not suicide and that's the worst it can be. It, and he continues, it motivates murder, mass murder, often then followed by suicide. And so that is the, the point in context he is bringing up these um, significant historical, awful, tragic events, um, such as the Columbine shooting, um, Sandy Hook, and was there another? What am I? Um, he talks about, yeah, a few things. There's a few. The Columbine thing, I don't know the story of Columbine. I would not call it a, a false flag. I just, I think there was a backstory there about their interaction with the authorities before the fact that, um, may color the real purposes behind it so that when Peterson is using it as evidence that this kind of viewpoint leads to that kind of behavior, I mean, there may be like major influential, influential factors. I think he might also have talked about like a theater shooting, which was also in Colorado, oh, yeah. which that was definitely fishy and, you know, a lot of these things. So, uh, but that's not to say that there isn't murder and suicide and murder, suicide and evil, uh, but 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 anyway, so I didn't I didn't like the way he handled that, and I would never ever take that out of context and give it to anybody. And I don't really recommend even this for kids. This what we're doing now. But he does make a really important point, and this is one thing I really like about the book, and I'm sure this is why it is so catchy, is that it's his like his style is an unapologetic punch in the nose mm -hmm. that you have to own. Have you done everything in your life? Stop complaining until you've done everything that you can do. And I've always said, I kind of had that philosophy. Like if you've got problems, if you don't feel well, you're not happy or whatever. First thing you do is change, is take away things that you are doing bad. I would start with 
drugs and alcohol, including caffeine, if it has to get to that, screens. And then I would add things that are healthy and important, like sleep and exercise and food. And then when you're in a really good state, then maybe you can start examining that you're you know, maybe your reactions are no good because you're overextended or you're not mindful, or maybe your reactions are no good because you haven't really been able to face the reality of yourself. But if you've eliminated all of those things that can cause you to have self-loathing, drugs, alcohol, bad lifestyle, if you you eliminate the things that cause you to have self-loathing, you may be able to face some of those psychological weaknesses. And I, and I actually felt that once I um, quit drinking completely for like 18 months and I noticed that if you don't drink at night, you know, it's a little harder to fall asleep and things would, you know, I would think about things in my past, whatever. But after a few, I think it was only a few weeks, those little things that I used to worry about, it was very easy to square away because I was squaring them away. So sometimes those big monsters that are, that you think you can't handle you could handle if you were in tip top shape and you can do that. Uh, you know, maybe one, you know, choose whichever one you want, you want to do first because people can do it the other way too. get rid of the monster. And then you'll start Mm -hmm. taking care of yourself. Like you can do it either way. But, and I think he even uses the word monster in here. Um, so like even on the alcohol thing, it's like alcohol is a depressant. And so people, use it as a coping mechanism for, you know, alleviating anxiety or depression or anything, but really like all it's doing is causing more of that symptom. And so cutting it out, like as just like one simple thing to do to clean up your life and clear up your life, it's going to, the removal of that, which is also like physiologically depressing you further, like with that being one last thing you're adding on top of your pile of misery, like you're going to be that much better off instantaneously, or maybe not instantaneously, but But, like you said, fairly quickly. But I have, I have had this uh, realization over the years, having a lot of experience with drug addicts in my family, losing a lot of people to drugs, really sadly still happening to this day. Mm, And my family's really, really terrible. And uh, I always wondered how people could, how they could do the hardest thing they've ever had to do, which is kick drugs and at the same time, take away the thing that they've always relied on as a crutch drugs. So then I was exposed in this process of, um, like reading the DBT stuff and all that, uh, and like boundaries, the boundaries book, there's a, a philosophy, I think it's Catholic chick. I forget her name. Shoot. They're going to yell at me. Uh, My (laughs) sister's a big fan and I can't believe I don't, everybody knows her name. His name is Marsha something. And put it in the notes. Linehan, Linehan, Marsha Linehan. So the point is that they they would say you need to develop coping skills before you take those drugs and stuff away. So, and mm-hmm. I actually think that given that the other way, I've never really seen, I, I've seen it fail more than I've seen it work, perhaps, that um, you have to, a lot of this stuff, see, he writes it, it's short, but you have to know yourself. It's simple, but it's not oh, easy. Yes. And the execution is hard. And I mean, honesty with yourself, I think is always the most important thing. It is. And um, you're very right. Like these are very simple rules. Like he breaks them down into 12. And then there's a second book that I haven't even touched yet. Um, we'll get to that eventually, maybe one day. Um, but I think you kind of have to come into this book already being an awakeish person or like a uh, somebody who is open to the self-examination 
Um, and so like it, it, I recommend this to just about anybody, but I know most people aren't going to go get it or dive into it or, or even continue past the first chapter, because even if they think they're into the whole, uh, self-help and self-learning thing, there's still some of this denial of this is your responsibility and nobody else's. And where that kind of comes back into play is in this chapter, especially is the whole idea is like people get into this mental framework that everything wrong in their life or wrong with the world should and could be blamed on somebody or something. And there's always somebody to point to instead of like, and the whole point of this chapter is basically like, well, you know, maybe some of those things are somebody else's fault and whatever. However, you can only do so much of that. You can only do so much about that. But what you can do is where examine your life, like do the Solzhenitsyn and don't actually sit in a gulag. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Good luck. And, you know, we're all first on the trains of the gulag um, where we'll have plenty of time for self-reflection at some point in the FEMA camps. But it's that self, it's that like self-examination and being um, kind of ruthless in your investigation to like, what you could be doing wrong in any in any capacity because any little thing that you're doing that is cluttering up your life or further complicating your life is making it that much harder on you and it but it's your responsibility and you're the only one who can declutter that and get that off your plate and fix that up and and clean your room and do those things he did say that he had a client who said she hoped their problems were her fault because then she could fix them. And I feel the exact same way. If I have conflict with some somebody and they're like, well, it wasn't my fault, blah, blah. I'm like, well, this is the 10th time, time it's happened. So if it's not your fault, we can't be friends anymore because that means you can't fix it. <laughs> so let's just, let's just figure out what we can do to solve this problem. But I mean, I feel like that primarily about myself. Like, I hope it's my fault because then I can fix it. Like, that's true. I think a lot with marriage It's like, I want to look at the thing I can fix because I'm, yeah you know, I'm the, I'm the, the domestic in this relationship. And if somebody needs to pay attention to that stuff, I, I hope I, I'm the one who's able to do it. But I wanted to read a few of the things that he, um, that he reiterated because mm -hmm. they were important, I think. And he said this a couple of times. So I guess he really thinks it's important. He says, do things fall apart because we have not paid sufficient attention? Oh, yeah. Failure to prepare is, is a sin. So there can be mm -hmm. an act of God, but if it's foreseeable and you have not prepared, it's, uh, it's a sin. And so I, I think that's true. And I think that that's another one of those DVT skills is cope ahead. So you need to be mindful. You need to be not overextended. You need to cope ahead. And, and when you get caught off guard, once or twice as a person who's growing up, you know, whatever, a teenager, I can understand it. But over time, when the same things happen in your life over and over again, you really have to understand that um, it's worth taking some time in advance. And that is a, a sign of intellect and maturity. It's, it's not easy. And he says a few more things. He says, start to stop doing what mm -hmm. you know to be wrong. So start to stop doing, do it now. That's a good one. Now, sometimes if you're depressed, it's hard to just do it now, mm -hmm. but, but that, try. Yeah. I mean, you know, you might fail at the try, but if you try and it works, then like all of a sudden you're going to be a little less depressed and that helps. <laughs> he says, do only those things that you could speak of with honor. And that reminds me of my friend, Liz, God rest her soul. 
said, used to say that uh, you should never have secrets. Hmm. And I, and I was like, I try to live that way. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? I don't have secrets. And if I had secrets, I'd have to think about that. That's why I hated as a kid to lie. I left, I left home when I was pretty young. I was 17. Mm -hmm. I had a job and I got an apartment. I stopped going to school, whatever. But I remember the feeling of liberty when I had accountability. I had the responsibility. Mm -hmm. I had the accountability. I had the liberty to live the way I wanted to. And all the consequences of my decisions, my actions were mine. Mm -hmm. And I, and I love that. It's like a Kaczynski thing. It's autonomy. That's why I like podcasting rather than like investment banking. Like it just, the hierarchy that comes down, I'd rather make nothing than a lot and have to just have that oppressive sense of somebody else telling you what to do. But the idea of not being, not keeping secrets, only doing things that you can speak of with honor, that is liberating. It's liberating. You are accountable for it. You don't have to answer to anybody but yourself. And if you want to live a life worth living, I would say that that kind of honor is a part of it. Yeah. Uh, he also says, don't overlook the guidelines of your culture. He says, you use your own standards of judgment, rely on yourself for guidance. You don't have to rely on an arbitrary code of behavior, but you, you should not overlook the guidelines of your culture. Now I feel like our culture has weaponized its influence over our children mm-hmm. and ha- is teaching us bad things. It's really a difficult time to learn from the past and prepare for the future when things change like this. And they, you know, they have that iron grip on the kids' little brains. Anyway, he's, (laughs) he says after, when you make, uh, just stop making your own life more difficult than it needs to be. Uh, he said, you will then be left with inevitable bare tragedies of life, but they will no longer be compounded with bitterness and deceit. I think that comes with honesty and responsibility, self-reflection, self-examination. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, well, who knows that what existence might be like if we all decide to strive for the best. And of course, he concludes with... Set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. I think that's right. Yeah. It's tough. Not easy. I really like between the lines of where you kind of just pulled that from, I literally put a heart next to this and that... You know, basically, you'll discover um, that your now less corrupted soul is stronger than it might have been and able to bear those tragedies of life. And then some. Um, And I really liked perhaps your uncorrupted soul will then see its existence as a genuine good, as something to celebrate, even in the face of your own vulnerability. Perhaps you will become an ever more powerful force for peace and whatever is good. You know, that is so awesome that you pulled that out because it just took me back to when I had my son who had Down syndrome and it took some time to get used to. And I remember my husband and I remember the moment he was like, I don't know how old the baby was. He could have been two months, could have been two years, but he's little. And no, maybe two months. And we were walking through the, it was like Home Depot Expo parking lot. Mm -hmm. And my husband and I were finally kind of getting used to the idea and he said, we both kind of said it at the same time, the way I said it was, you know, maybe this is just a journey. Maybe this is an adventure. You know, maybe this child is the golden thread woven through the tapestry of our lives. And when you just read that thing about, you know, maybe you can bear these burdens and you can, it can, it can be good for you. I was thinking that, 
this child who I thought it was bad gave me the opportunity to, to rise to the occasion. And I feel like that I really wouldn't, you know, the charity starts at home. I wouldn't have known that truth. I wouldn't have had that opportunity if I weren't faced with the need to have that kind of generosity of spirit in my house every day and show it to my kids and teach it to my kids. So it's it's funny. I mean, I wouldn't normally say like, oh, I have this, like, you know, oh, I totally know what it's like to be proud of yourself. But I do, I do know what it's like to get the to feel, to be rewarded for trying to make that extra effort of being, you know, to rise to the occasion. In this small way, I was given an opportunity and I'm grateful for it. Absolutely. And I know this is so cliched and I'm sure you've heard it before, but I think it it comes with reason. Like um, they say, special kids are given to special people. Well, or they, you know, that's just the way it, yeah, end up being special because they they just make you. But it's really, and I remember my husband, there was some really long article in Vanity Fair about how this woman was, you know, her pregnancy, whatever, had a problem. And so she decided to terminate it and she did it for like the good of her family, whatever. And my husband, when I read it, you know, I was kind of horrified. And my husband said, oh, I feel so sorry for her because she was given that gift and she just didn't, she just didn't recognize it. And she was then did, I, I thought that was, he's not the fuzziest guy in the world. I just thought that was like, he was really moved because he was just like, that's tragic for her. So yeah, so it's been a, it's been a great journey. And then, you know, we had typical kids and everybody's so different. And I, I feel like I've really learned a lot and I hope that I'm very uh, connected with grandkids and can impart some of what I do hope will be intergenerational wisdom. And I'm so excited for you because you are obviously very well prepared. And I like the story of your, of your upbringing and your exposure to good family dynamics. And if you really homeschool your kids, that would just be just the most wonderful thing, really making the most out of this life. I think you would really be making the most out of every minute if you did that. That's my plan. And that's, uh, I think why I'm taking this so seriously too, because what, if, if not that, like what else, you know, um, kind of like how you, you've come from this world of, uh, investment banking and just being beaten down, um, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually every day. It's like, <laughs> totally. I'm, I'm not in investment banking. However, me working for somebody else, um, even if you like the person, it's like, it's still not you working for the benefit of just you and your family. I mean, yes. And your own values. Exactly. That's, that's the big thing. It's like, you know, yes, I'm rewarded in a monetary fashion, but what does that reward even mean when it's not something that I can actually like impart on children that I am raising in my own home? And, um, yeah, so I guess um, a, another uh, aspect of my um, non-traditional or like these days non-traditional approach to all this is that I'm also doing a home birth. <gasps> and, wow. Yeah. So if anybody's listening, like did the same and has tips and wants to, you know, share them. Uh, wow. That is super cool. Out Lanny of Greener Postures. She's your girl. Like, oh, that would be great. Maybe you should interview her if you can. Sweet. Yeah. It would be really worth uh, I, an increasingly rare Vixen show 
to talk to Laddie of Greener Posture. She's a home story. I went to visit her up in Washington State with Chud. They have a, okay. a podcast and she they're really so smart and I just love them to death. I love them. And she did a home birth during lockdown. Mm-hmm. And uh, boy, her kids, the baby that was born that way, I mean, he's just, you know, non-GMO from top to bottom. And (laughs) he's just awesome. Like, you just want to, he's like, you know, I I mean, he's like the the baby version of a porterhouse steak. Like, he's just the best. So that I think would be, you should definitely pick her brain on that. And oh, wow. It's yeah, I just like an organic baby. I think that's a great idea. I know. I was thinking about that. <laughs> like, it's so serious. But in all, it, like coming back to you know what we just read and went through, and even this Netflix limited series with a cult involved, I'm just freaking out. Like going into motherhood, like this is a scary world, <laughs> and we really parents generally have this responsibility, as Peterson laid out, like to make sure that their child is prepared for being a member of society in a productive and um, well-received fashion. Like you want, like you, you should be somebody who's a joy to be around. And, and that's, you know, it's a, it's a scary world that these kids are going to be growing up in. And it freaks me out that uh, you you can't save the world if they kick you out. Like you've got, we're going to get into the tunnels eventually, but even then we're going to have to have a society. We will. And we have to. And I was even thinking like, man, I grew up like in choir and doing all these like activities, but like, you know, there's still mandates out there where people are required to be jabbed with this arbitrary poison. Um, And it's like that. I don't want to. And nurse their babies. All of a sudden baby formula is short. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Frightening. So anyway. Fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. We as humans have a lot, like we as aware and awake and conscious humans have a lot on our plates, but um, we can I handle it. We can handle it. And um, he gives us, you know, steps and easy ways to do so. This has been awesome. I really enjoy our conversations. I know. So when I forgot that book at home, I was Oof. like, this is not good. But you know what? It was good. It was super yeah. fun. And I, it's just an absolute joy to see you. I'm so happy for you. Thank you. And I'm sure people will enjoy listening to this. And then, you know, I guess there may, maybe we can squeeze in seven and eight before the big day. Hopefully. I think we can. We've got some time. We've got yeah, some we've, time. But I'm you, on month five. So we're, we've got right. some time. Okay. So that's awesome. Thank you so much. Do you please direct people to, even if you're, if you don't put up a show a week or whatever to, to, you have plenty of back episodes. You have, who'd you have? Mo Fast, John McAfee's wife, or did you have John McAfee himself? We had McAfee himself and we've never, we never reached back out to um, his wife, even though that's still a goal at some point. We just wanted to be sensitive. Like when, yes, definitely even more um, like, Mm -hmm. Oh man, how do we not take her up on the offer to have her on too, when we could have. So, yeah. um, yeah, Jeff Tucker, um, Bob Murphy, um, somewhat more recently, like, you know, Jeremy Coffin, uh, Kaufman, love him, um, Reed Coverdale. So, you know, we haven't been recording as often at all lately. And this, this whole year has kind of been a little slower for us, but it's cause you know, go look at our 2021 docket, man, we hit it hard. So where you can find all that best is voluntaryvixens.com. We're part of the MLGA podcast network. Um, those are our peeps. Um, Jesse and I, I had to get off Instagram like because it was just not 
healthy for me to be there um, when I was trying to conceive a child. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I'm you, never on it. So I don't know gotta, how toxic it is. Well, it's just like the um, comparison stress. And um, so like, you know, uh-huh. I had to detox that a little bit. So yeah. I'm still there, but you can find us on um, Instagram, Voluntary Vixens or Girl Foxes Who Nap because we're shadow banned. <laughs> We're shadow banned out the wazoo. Um, they're coming for us. And then we're still both on Twitter. Um, we be- now have both handles for Vixens Voluntary, which is our original, and um, Voluntary Vixens. Or nice. I- I'm specifically, and uh, Monica's tagged me um, individually before, but Pet My Maddie, P-E-T-T, My Maddie. <laughs> <laughs> that goes with the whole Fox thing and the Vixen thing. <laughs> Well, I like the Mad Vixen because your network, Make Liberty Great Again, has the mad ones on it. Yep. And uh, I like the whole. It all comes together. Well, if in case you do put this in your feed or if it shows up where somebody hasn't heard me before, I am Monica Perez. You can find all of my stuff on Deep Dives with Monica Perez on your favorite podcasting platform. And me and Binkley still put all of our stuff together on rockfin.com slash propaganda report. So until next time, thanks so much to Maddie, the Mad Vixen.